0: First, read aloud for the academic year. Um, My name is Rita Sesco. I coordinate the program. And our first event this year is entitled For the Trees. And it has been designed by Dr. Rick Livingston from the Humanities Institute and also by a poet, uh, Andrew Hudgens, who is in the English department, professor in the English department, has quite a list of. Publications uh, under his name as well. So I'm going to turn this over to both of them. Okay. On the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. What for? Not for the fruit. The tree that bears the fruit is not the one that was planted. I want the tree that stands in the earth for the first time, with the sun already going down, and the water touching its roots, and the earth full of the dead, and the clouds passing one by one over its leaves. It's a poem called Place by W.S. Merwin. So welcome to uh, reading For the Trees. Um, I'm Rick Livingston, I'm the director of the Humanities Institute, and I'm here with Andrew Hudgens from the English department, poet and creative writer, and we're here to read, um, in praise of trees, uh, in celebration of, of uh, the uh, arbo blitz that's taking place, uh, today, I mean, over the next few days, um, And you've probably seen some of the signs around uh, campus. The Arbo Blitz is an effort to take an inventory uh, of all the trees, starting in Central Campus but then extending throughout the campus of Ohio State. This is a project of uh, Chadwick Arboretum and Mary Maloney, who runs the Chadwick Arboretum, and Steve Volkman, our uh, University Landscape Architect, who are masterminds and inspirers of a project to get uh, OSU uh, enrolled as a tree campus USA, uh, which involves official recognition that we acknowledge the value of our trees, but also that we plan to and have every intention to commit to taking care of the trees that we have. Um, It's a little-known fact that there have historically been funds to plant trees on campus and funds to Remove trees that have that have died, but no funds for ma- maintaining the trees or caring for the trees that exist. Um, now, as Buckeyes, as the campus named that for a tree, you wouldn't think that we needed to be reminded of the need to take care of our trees, but it seems that mostly we take them for granted. So it's a nice opportunity to to um, be reminded of what it is that we owe trees, what they give to us, and maybe to give uh, to give back some. There are some volunteer opportunities on uh, Friday and Saturday to help out with the tree inventory, and Steve and Mary will be able to tell you that. Um, the Tree Campus uh, uh, USA program is, is uh, or that initiative is part of the OSU master plan, which was planned for 50 years what's gonna happen to our campus. And and the master plan calls for getting back to what has been our historic tree cover, that is the amount of trees that we had somewhere around the beginnings of of the university, which will be a a challenge and a task, but um, when I heard at Arbor Day um, this task announced, Mary, leapt up and said, we're, we're going to make it. So, what is that? 100,000 trees we have to plan? We have quite a few. We want to have one for every student on campus. So, a tree for every student. That's something to show. You. Um, something to shoot for. So, um, for the trees, there's a, a, an old saying that it's it's uh, sometimes hard to see the forest for the trees. Um, I'm hoping that that in some of the poems that I'm going to read, from the that Andrew is going to read. Uh, maybe we we'll can catch a glimpse of the forest uh, for the trees. Um, so we'll, we'll each read about 20 minutes or so, and then at the end we can have a few minutes for con- uh, uh, conversation. So uh, I wanted to start by, by uh, uh, reading a poem from members of my Introduction to Humanities class. We just came from talking about Thoreau and the Declaration of Independence. And this is a poem by William Payne called the Emancipation Proclamation. Whereas it minds its own business and lives in its one place so faithfully, and its trunk supports us when we lean against it, and its branches remind us of how we think. Whereas it keeps no bank account but hoards carbon and does not discriminate between starlings and robins and provides free housing for insects and squirrels, and lifts its heartwood grave into the air, whereas it holds our firmament in place, and writes underground gospel with its roots, and whispers us oxygen with its leaves, and may not survive its new climate of ultraviolet, we the people, for ourselves, and our children, necessarily proclaim this tree free from commerce and belonging to itself as long as it and we shall live. The emancipation Proclamation. So, here's another poem by William Hayne called Maple and Starling." Over my head, a maple fills with starlings against the evening sky. I won't move. I won't speak. The maple will hold them as long as it does. In a few seconds, the maple rising above me blossomed with starlings, darker than evening, darker than leaves. They flew from nowhere to here for the first time. I knew maple and starlings for the first time. This evening, the maple above me turned to starlings. A few moments, and everything was over. Nothing changed. The starlings flew from nowhere, they remember. The maple stands for nothing in the evening air. How long had it been evening? As long as starlings' shadows were blowing through the maples, as long as leaves were flying. Over my head, a maple fills with evening, releases flows of starlings, or receives them wherever they came from, wherever they're going. The maple growing into the evening above me fills with starlings. For a few seconds, it's been as though I've not been here to say maple and starlings. For a few seconds, the evening has darkened with starlings. Someone has been dreaming, maple, starlings, an evening, second by second being its own darkness, A maple rising in the dark air. Starlings from nowhere to nowhere. A maple. Starlings. So here's a poem by Rita Dove. We learned about the state tree in school, its fruit so useless, so ugly, no one bothered to commend the smudged trunk, nor the slim leaves shifting over our heads. Yet they were a good thing to kick along gutters on the way home, though they stank like a drunk's piss in the roads when cars had smashed them. And in autumn, when the spiny helmets split open, there was the bald seed with its wheat colored eye. We loved the modest countenance between that leather, beneath that leathery cap. We too did not want to leave our mothers. We piled them up for ammunition. We lay down with them among the bruised leaves so that we could rise shining. Here, another old poet, oh, Mary Oliver, The Black Walnut Tree. My mother and I debate. We could sell the black walnut tree to the lumberman and pay off the mortgage. Likely some storm, anyway, will churn down its dark boughs, smashing the house. We talk slowly, two women trying, in a difficult time, to be wise. Roots in the cellar drains, I say, and she replies that the leaves are getting heavier every year and the fruit harder to gather away. Something brighter than money moves in our blood, an edge sharp and quick as a trowel that wants us to dig and sow, so we talk, but we don't do anything. That night I dreamed of my fathers out of Bohemia, filling the blue fields of fresh and generous Ohio with leaves and vines and orchards. What my mother and I both know is that we'd crawl with shame in the emptiness we would made in our own and our father's backyard. So the black walnut tree swings through another year of sun and leaping winds of leaves and bounding fruit. And month after month, whipcracker of the mortgage. And here's James Wright, another great Ohio poet. This is a prose book sumac in Ohio. He grew up in in Martin's Ferry and wrote a lot of poems about Martin's Ferry, so right on the Ohio. Toward the end of May, the air in southern Ohio is filling with fragrances, and I'm a long way from home. A great place lies open in the earth, there in Martin's Ferry, near the river, and to this day I don't know how it came to be. Maybe the old fathers of my town, their white hair lost long since into the coal smoke and the snow, gathered in their hundreds along the hither side of the B&O railroad track, presented whatever blades and bull tongues they could spare and tore the earth open. Or maybe the gully appeared there on its own, long before the white-haired fathers came and the Ohio changed its direction and the glacier went away. But now, toward the end of May, the sumac trees on the slopes of the gully are opening their brindle buds. And suddenly, right before my eyes, the tough leaf branches turn a bewildering scarlet just at the place where they join the bough. You can strip the long leaves away already, but the leaf branch is more thoroughly rooted into the tree than the trunk itself is into the ground. Before June begins, the sap coal smoke and soot from wheeling steel wafted down the Ohio, but some curious gentleness in the Appalachians will gather all over the trunk. The skin will turn aside hatchets and knife blades. You cannot even carve a girl's name on the cement. It is viciously determined to live and die alone, and you can go straight to This is John Ashbury, Some Trees. These are amazing, each joining a neighbor as though speech were a still performance. Arranging by chance to meet as far this morning from the world as agreeing with it, you and I are suddenly what the trees try to tell us we are, that their merely being there means something that soon we may touch, love, explain. And glad not to have invented such comeliness, we are surrounded, a silence already filled with noises, a canvas in which emerges a chorus of smiles, a winter morning placed in a puzzling fight and moving. Our days put on such reticence, these accents seem their own defense. Wendell Berry of how long does it take to make the woods how long does it take to make the woods as long as it takes to make the world the woods is present as the world is the presence of all its past and of all its time to come it is always finished it is always being made the act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction It is a part of eternity, and for its end and beginning, belonging to the end and beginning of all things, beginning lost in the end, the end in the beginning. What is the way to the woods? How do you go there? By climbing up through the six days field, kept in all the body's years, the body's sorrow, weariness, and joy. By passing through the narrow gate on the far side of that field, where the pasture grass of the body's life gives way to the high, original standing of the trees by coming into the shadow, the shadow of the grace of the straight ways ending, the shadow of the mercy of light. Why must the gate be narrow? Because you cannot pass beyond it, burdened. To come into the woods, you must leave behind the six days' world, all of it. All of its plans and hopes you must come without weapon or tool, alone, expecting nothing, remembering nothing, into the ease of sight, the brotherhood of I.
1: um, But I do have Robert Frost, Edward Thomas, (coughs) Walt Whitman, and me. A descending heart. (laughs) But but, um, I thought I'd start with a poem that I had written for um, Arbor Day last year. I didn't think I would come up with one, but I did, and then I couldn't come anyway, and sent one of uh, our graduate students, who did a very good job, I'm glad to hear, the, um, this is called, Beyond My Footfall. A footfall on the fallen leaves, my footfall. Careful, I am careful not to trouble mushrooms furled in the spongy, crumbling duff or scuffle, the softening mass muffling my steps. All night, small fowl pierced by spring squabble toward triumphal arias, high-blooded harmonies fill a canopy full, already with the almost metallic odor of chlorophyll, the blue air perfume, green, feel life glow from each leaf shining new. Call it joyful, call it plentiful or prayerful, call it summer's fuel, then the darkening fall blazes firelessly. Xanthophyll like gold and copper foil, coruscant beyond my footfall metaphor and last belief to the next unfailing regeneration faithful. One of the things that was kind of interesting to me in that poem was to see if you could put words like chlorophyll in xanthophyll into a poem, the um, and you can see, you could probably hear that I was working off those full 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 sounds in there, um, starting with the word you know fall and fallen, and um, playing with those and that, that I hope use words like chlorophyll in a poem. The um, now um, I was I thought I would not read Walt Whitman's poems but there's a section from his prose and specimen days, I think we're in the 70s here, fairly far after the war, the Civil War, and um, he's not feeling well, so he goes out in the woods to exercise, and his method of exercising is to um, wrestle with the trees. A solitary and pleasant sundown hour at the pond Exercising arms, chest, my whole body by a tough oak sapling thick as my wrist, 12 feet high, pulling and pushing, inspiring the good air. After I wrestle with the tree a while, I can feel its young sap and virtue welling up out of the ground and tingling through me from crown to toe like help's wine. Then for addition, and variety, I launch forth in my vocalism, shout declamatory pieces, sentiments, sorrow, anger, etc., from the stock poets or plays, or inflate my lungs and sing the wild tunes and the things I heard of the blacks down south, or patriotic songs I learned in the army. I make the echoes ring, I tell you. As the twilight fell, In a pause of these ebulations, an owl somewhere the other side of the creek sounded to woo, 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 soft and pensive, and I fancy a little sarcastic, repeated four or five times, either to applaud the songs, or perhaps an ironical comment on the anger, sorrow, or style of the stop poets. The, um, this is kind of the same thing that um, Robert Frost does in his great poem, Birches, where as a boy he plays swinging on the birch trees out in the forest. Um, when I was growing up in Alabama, I tried that with hickories. It didn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, have you all ever tried, have you ever swung on a, have you done a swung on a birch? No, have you ever, Mary, you ever swung on a birch? So
0: swung
1: on a birch? No, I yeah. not Okay. Because I think what Frost is talking about, you pull them down and you use them as a... As a what would you call that? Catapult. Um, catapult, yeah, yeah. To kind of swing you up and then you swing around on it. And um, the um, video, nobody's ever done that. That's, that's a dying thing. Nobody <laughs> does that anymore. Maybe they'll make a video game of it. <laughs> um, um, all right. Here's another poem of um, my own. It's called "Birth of a Naturalist," playing on a poem by um, Seamus Haney, where um, Haney's talking about death of a naturalist, where he sees um, the frogs spawning, and the 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 scene is so gross that he runs from it. And um, and I was thinking, I must be as much of a boy as it's possible to be, because that seemed to be the kind of thing that would make you a naturalist rather than (laughs) running from it. At some level, I think it's a poem about sexual fear, um, because he's seeing the frog scum, basically the frog jizz, floating in the pond, and that grosses him out. I think the nice word is semen, isn't it? The um, um, birth of a naturalist, among moist bromeliads I was bored, and the soft-fingered ferns annoyed me like an ant touching my face and trailing her fingers down my cheeks. What was I, a possession? In the, small, in the gift shop where I desired nothing, a stranger confused boredom or balked desire and bought me a small pot with a blunt nub like a toad's brown snout jutting from dry soil. Thank you, I said, thank you, as I had been taught, and she departed, a plump whirl of black hair and red scarves. In my pocket, the pot rode my thigh like a stone, and because it was a secret, my secret, I began to love it. The next day, the toad's tumescent snout Now mossy green cracked the packed dirt. On the window sill sill over my bed, a rickety stalk rose and kept rising, rising until it fell. And with the toppled orchid in my arms, I slept past dawn when mother's laughter woke me and I was shamed. Beyond our lawn and property, again in secret, I tucked its roots in spongy humus, Humus. I always call that hummus. <laughs> always mispronounce that word. The um, spongy um humus, where spindly and limp leaf it dwindled. Now when I stretch out over its absence, the coarse vigor of its killers cushions me, and I imagine the lost orchid animating blackened up, bramble and broadleaf dock. Morning glory overclines it all, green on green, flaring its beautiful and murderous alabaster trumpets, while twizzling vines unfurl, spin in the sun, and clutching caress my face. One of the things, you know. Or you look at a morning glory line and you know they're putting out those green feelers, um and you sometimes sense that you can see them move um somebody's done time lapse a lot of people have done time lapse photography of this on youtube so you can actually see them coming out and grabbing the um, the, um the fence or whatever and crawling up it's kind of great um go ahead. that's my point about that i want to go back to equipment again too. Um, in, again in um, um, Specimen Days which is basically his notebook this is where we get those great images of him tending the Union soldiers after the war but he goes on to his life in New Jersey which is where that piece I just read about his wrestling with the trees takes place and um, at one point in there he just has a little section called, and it's, got, it's put in boldface and it's called Trees I am familiar with here. And he's kept this. but he's made notes. And it reads, I think, like a porn. Trees I am familiar with here. Oaks, many kinds, one sturdy sassafras, old fellow, vital, green, willows, bushy, five feet thick at the catalpas, but I sit under every day, persimmons, cedars, plenty. Mountain ash. Tulip trees. lioria, Thank you. That <laughs> one. We, you know, I practiced that before I got here, and now I can't say it. Leriodin. Um, Is hickories of the magnolia family. Maples, many kinds. Have seen it in Michigan and locusts, southern Illinois. 140 feet Birches, high and eight foot thick at the dogwood, pine, does not transplant well, best of the elm, raised from seeds, the chestnut, lumbermen call it yellow linden, poplar, aspen, stickaborse, spruce, gum trees, both sweet and sour, hornbeam, beeches, laurel, black walnuts, holly. Just a list. Just a list, but a very pretty list. <laughs> now we should look at um, Edward Thomas. Edward Thomas was a close friend with Robert Frost. And this, um, the reason I like, one of the reasons I like Thomas is you can feel what Frost would have been like if Frost had been an English way you read these poems. They were very close. They sounded a bit alike. They were helping each other become the poets that they became. This would have been in the years leading up to the First World War. Um, so we're talking probably 1914, 15, 16, and then from um, then Thomas volunteered and was almost immediately killed in the war. Um, his entire poetic body of work is that. the um, So it's pretty small. This is a poem called Aspens. All day and night, save winter, every weather, above the inn, the smithy and the shop, the aspens at the crossroads talk together of rain, until their last leaves fall from the top. Out of the blacksmith's cavern comes the ringing of hammer, shoe, and anvil. Out of the inn, the clink, the hum, the roar, the random singing, the sounds that for these fifty years have been. The whisper of the aspens is not drowned, and over lightless pine and footless road empty as sky, with every other sound not ceasing, calls their ghosts from their abode. A silent smithy, a silent inn, nor fails in the bare moonlight or the thick furred gloom in tempest or the light of nightingales to turn the crossroads to a ghostly room. And it would be the same were no house near, over all sorts of weather, men, and times. Aspens must shake their leaves, and men may hear, but need not listen, more than to my rhymes. Or whatever wind blows, while the, they and I have leaves, we cannot other than an aspen be, that ceaselessly, unreasonably breathes, or so men think. Who like a different tree? And there's another one. Um, this is the one about um, an ash grove, and in this one, the ash grove is half dead. The ash grove. Half of the grove stood dead and those that yet lived made little more than the dead ones made of shade. If they led to a house long before, they had seen it fall, but they welcomed me. I was glad without cause, and delay. Scarce a hundred paces under the trees was the interval, paces each sweeter than sweetest miles, but nothing at all. Not even the spirits of memory and fear with restless wing could climb down in to molest me over the wall that I passed through at either end without noticing. And now an ash grove far from these hills can bring the same tranquility in which I wander a ghost with a ghostly gladness, as if I heard a girl sing the song of the ash grove, soft as love uncrossed. And then in a crowd, or in a distance, it was lost. But the moment unveiled something unwilling to die. And I had what most I desired, without search, or desert, or cost. I'm gonna read a poem just simply because Rick told me he liked it. Um, This is a poem about um, being, um, this was in upstate New York, and looking at the evergreens in, it must have been spring, because you could see when the wind blew, the clouds of pollen would come off of it in enormous golden waves. It was kind of dark, but you could kind of sense that it was that goldy green color of pollen. And um, that was before I had sinus problems. I I thought it was more beautiful then than I might now, But, um, um, but this is a poem that comes to that and it's called The Persistence of Nature in Our Lives. You find them in the darker woods occasionally, those swollen lumps of fungus, twisted, moist and yellow, But when they show up on the lawn, it's like they've tracked me home. In spring, the persistence of nature in our lives rises from below, drifts from above. The pollen settles on my skin and waits for me to bloom, trying to work green magic on my flesh. They're indiscriminate, these furs. They'll mate with anything a great green-yellow cloud of pollen sifts across the house. The waste of it leaves nothing out, not even men. The golden storm descends. Wind lifts it from the branches, locks it in descending arcs of need and search, a grainy yellow haze that settles over everything, as if it's all the same. I love the utter waste of pollen, a scum of it on every pond and puddle. It rides the ripples and when they dry, remains a line of yellow dust, zigzagging in the shape of waves. One night, perhaps a little drunk, I stretched out on the porch, watching the Milky Way. At dawn, I woke to find a man shape on the hardwood floor, outlined in pollen. A sharp, spread-eagle figure, drawn there like the body, at a murder scene. Except for that spot, the whole damn house, glittered green gold. I wandered out across the lawn, my bare feet damp with dew, the wet ground soft, forgiving beneath my step. I understood I am, as much as anyone, the golden beast who staggers home in June beneath the yearning trees. Uh, Have you ever seen that moment where um, a tree is packed with birds and they all take off at the same time, and for a moment, they have the shape of the tree. You know, they um, when the, um, the, the they kind of fill the um, what would you call that part of the tree where all the leaves are. The um, the um, yeah. and huh? Canopy. I I thought canopy had to be more than one tree. No. Okay. The um, and. Believe me, I trust you more than me on that. Um, and they all leave it at once. So the tree is here, and the birds, since so they all left at the same time, have some of the same shape of that tree to it. And it's like a shadow. It's already already have a shadow. The shadow is here. And this one is rising up off of it. Um, it's, a, um, it's an interesting thing to see, and... I was thinking about it, um, and anyway, came to this point. In this case, called the China berry. Um, they like China, China berries. Kind of a trashy tree, Do you hear know that? The, um, they have all those berries, and they come and they, they kind of kill the ground underneath it, and they leave a lot of rotting fruit. You get a bunch of nasty grackles all over the place. No, nope. it's a southern tree. Y'all, don't, y'all must not have it. Um, the, um, yeah, I have a poem that I w- I'm not going to read um, because it's, um, it gets into racial issues. But um, Elizabeth, Edora um, Welty, in one of her letters, points out that it's considered a um, trashy tree, and that you would see them in the black part of town in the South, and the white people would cut them out of their yard because the, um, it would kind of spring up when the birds would crack the seeds out of it. So, um, and so, you know, there's trees part of racial issues, uh, um, but, but, anyway, here's a very different kind of a poem. The Chinaberry Tree. I couldn't stand still watching them forever, but when I moved, the grapples covering each branch and twig sprang together into flight, and for a moment in midair they held the tree's shape the black tree peeling from the green as if they were its shadow or its soul before they scattered, circled, and reformed as grapples heading south for winter grain fields. Oh, it was just a chinaberry berry tree. The birds were simply grapples, a miracle made from this world and where I stood in it. But you can't know how long I stood there watching, and you can't know how desperate I'd become, advancing each step on the feet of my advancing shadow, how bitter and afraid I was, marching step after step with the underworld, my ominous, indistinct and mirror image, darkening with extreme and antic nothings, the ground I walked on in exact reversals, elongated and foreshortened parodies of each foot luring itself onto its shadow. And you can't know how I had tried to force the moment, make it happen before it happened. Not necessarily this, though this is what I saw, blackbirds deserting the tree they had become, becoming for a moment in midair, the China berry's shadow for a moment after they had ceased to be the China berry, Then scattering, meaning after meaning, birds strewn across the morning like flung gravel until they found themselves again as grapples, found each other, found south, and headed there while I stood before the green, abandoned tree." Now, I think I'm going to end with Robert Cross Birches. Now, is that a cliché? Does everybody read that who comes here? I don't think All right. Birches. When I see birches bend from left and right, across the line of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boys have been swinging them. But swinging doesn't bend them down to stay. Ice storms do that. Often, you must have seen them loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many-colored as the air stir, cracks and crazes their enamel. Now, do you all know what crazes means? I know you know, I'm talking to these people, the youngsters. Well, youngsters, what does crazes mean instead of, it doesn't, in this case, mean making somebody crazy. You know, when you see enamel or something that's really old, and has little cracks in it, like wood will do this, and then it, You know what I'm talking about? That's called crazing. And what he's talking about here is on the trees when the ice forms on the um, twigs of the trees and they move a little bit. It gets all those little cracks through it. Crazing. I've not expanded your vocabulary exactly one word. Did you know it already? There you go. Now, you're grateful, aren't you? You're going to use this all the time. Ice crazes. What else crazes? Clay exfoliation. Well, yeah, I should have thought of that first. You're absolutely right. That 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 gray that crackle you can see on some pottery is very sought after. too. Okay. Um, okay. Now, so we've got the um, we've got the ice doing that on the trees. Soon, the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avan- avalanching on the snow crust. Such heaps of broken glass. To sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They were dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break, though once they were bowed so long, so low, for so long, they never right themselves. You may see their trunks arching in the woods years afterwards, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their head to dry in the sun. But I was going to say when truth broke in with all her matter-of-fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have some boy bend them as he went out and in to fetch the cows, some boy too far from town to learn baseball. whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them and not one but hung limp. Not one was left for him to conquer. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground, he always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim, and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first, with a swish kicking his way down through the air, to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of birches, and so I dream of going back to be. It's when i weary of considerations and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across, across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish, and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree, and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven, till the tree could bear no more, but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good, both going and coming back, one could do worse than be a swinger of birches. And that's Robert Knox. Thank you all.
0: Thank you. Thank you, I have one last to read. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit longish, but it's. it's uh, Reversing perspective a little bit. Um, The poem by Denis Levitov called called A Tree Telling of Orpheus. Orpheus is, of course, the, the patron saint of poets and who played his lyre, his music so beautifully that all the animals were still and came around him, and the trees uprooted themselves and came to him as well. So, this is how the trees respond to music, Though a tree telling of Orpheus. White dawn, stillness. When the rippling began, I took it for seaweed, coming to our valley with rumors of salt, of treeless horizons. But the white fog didn't stir. The leaves of my brothers remained outstretched, unmoving. Yet the rippling drew nearer, and then my own outermost branches began to tingle, almost as if fire had been lit below them, too close, and their twig tips were drying and curling. That I was not afraid, only deeply alert. I was the first to see him, for I grew out on a pasture slope beyond the forest. He was a man, it seemed, with two moving stems, the short trunk, the two arm branches, flexible, each with five leafless twigs at their ends, and the head that's crowned by brown or gold grass, bearing a face not like the deep face of a bird, more like a flower's. He carried a burden made of some cut branch, bent while it was green, strands of a vine tight-stretched across it. From this, when he touched it, and from his voice, which, unlike the wind's voice, had no need of our leaves and branches to complete its sound, came the ripple. But it was now no longer a ripple. He had come near and stopped in my first shadow. It was a wave that bathed me as if rain rose from below and around me instead of falling. And what I felt was no longer a dry tingling. I seemed to be singing as he sang. I seemed to know what the lark knows. All my sap was mounting towards the sun that by now had risen. The mist was rising. The grass was drying. Yet my roots felt the music moisten them deep under earth. He came still closer, leaned on my trunk. The bark thrilled like a leaf still folded. Music. There was no twig of me, not trembling with joy. And fear. And as he sang, it was no longer sounds only that made the music. He spoke, and as no tree listens, I listened, and language came into my roots, out of the earth, into my bark, out of the air, into the pores, pores of my greenest shoots, gently as dew. And there was no word he sang, but I knew its meaning. He told of journeys, where sun and moon go while we stand in dark. Of an earth journey he dreamed he would take someday deeper than roots. He told of the dreams of man, wars, passions, griefs, and I, a tree, understood words. I had seen my thick bark would split like a sapling's that's grew too fast in the spring when a late frost wounds it. Fire, he sang, that trees fear, and I, a tree, rejoiced in its flames. New buds broke forth from me though it was full summer, as though his lyre, I knew its name, were both frost and fire, its cords flamed up to the crown in me. I was seed again, I was fern in the swamp, I was cold, and at the heart of my wood, so close I was to becoming man or God, there was a kind of silence, a kind of sickness, something akin to what men call boredom, something the poem descends a scale, a stream over stones, that gives to a candle a coldness in the midst of its burning, he said. It was then, and in the blaze of this power that reached me and changed me, I thought I should fall my length, that the singer began to leave me. Slowly moved from my noon shadow to open light, words leaping and dancing over his shoulders, back to me, river sweep of lyre tones becoming slowly again ripple. And I, in terror, but not in doubt of what I must do, in anguish, in haste, wrenched from the earth, root after root, the soil heaving and cracking, the moss tearing asunder, and behind me the others, my brothers forgotten since dawn, in the forest they too had heard, and were pulling their roots in pain out of a thousand years' layers of dead leaves, Rolling the rocks away, breaking themselves out of their depths. You would have thought we would lose the sound of the lyre, of the singing, so dreadful the storm sounds were, where there was no storm, no wind, but the rush of our branches moving, our trunks breasting the air. But the music, the music reached us clumsily, stumbling over our own roots, rustling our leaves. In answer, we move, we follow. All day we follow, uphill and down. We learned to dance. For he would stop where the ground was flat, and words, he said, taught us to leap, and to wind in and out around one another in figures, the lyre's measure designed. The singer laughed till he wept to see us, he was so glad. At sunset, we came to this place I stand in, this knoll with its ancient grove that was bare grass then. In the last light of that day, his song became farewell. He stilled our longing. He sang our sun-dried roots back into earth, ordered them all night rain of music, so quiet we could almost not hear it in the moonless dark. By dawn he was gone. We have stood here since in our new life. We have waited he does not return. It is said he made his birth journey and lost what he saw. It is said they found him and cut up his limbs for firewood. And it is said his head still sang and was swept out to sea singing. Perhaps he will not return. But what we have lived comes back to us. We see more. We feel as our wings increase something that lifts our branches, that stretches our furthest leaf tips further. The wind, the birds do not sound poorer, but clearer, recalling our agony and the way we danced. The music. Thank <laughs> you.